So what does the Bible say it means to encounter Jesus? So that's what we've been doing. And our aim really is to try and take us from kind of v- VHS DVD quality to Blu-ray quality. Any of you guys made the, made the leap from DVD to Blu-ray yet? Hazia is absent. I saw him earlier, but he did that a few years ago, and he went on and on about how amazing it was. Did any of you guys remember the adverts on the DVDs where they'd advertise Blu-ray, and they'd put two screens side to side, and they'd say, this is DVD quality, and this is Blu-ray quality. And for any of you who knew anything about TVs, you'd be sitting there going, no, that's not, that's not Blu-ray quality, because it's not a Blu-ray disc. You've basically taken DVD, put it less quality, and put it next to normal DVD quality. Anyone apart from me have that? No? <laughs> Okay, yeah, tech, tech, techie geeks at the back, they were, they were thinking that. But when it comes to Jesus, we want to have that jump where we go from this narrow-minded view, which we can sometimes have, to actually appreciating who he really is in all of his glory and all of his splendor. And so we want to look at people who encounter Jesus so we can learn what it means for us to actually meet the real Jesus. Yeah? And today's going to be a little bit different because um, what we've done up till now is we've looked at Jesus encountering people and talking to them and doing stuff Jesus doesn't really do much in today's story. Today's encounter, which is a a man called Simeon, who was a Jewish man, Jesus doesn't really do much. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't speak or anything. Because actually, Simeon is a man who met Jesus when he was only a few weeks old. But that encounter dramatically changed his life. And we're going to look at how that is. And really what I want to communicate to you today, kind of if, you want, if you want your take-home value for today's sermon, if you want to note that down in your notes, is I want to show you what it means to encounter Jesus as the climax of God's story. Okay, Meeting Jesus as the climax, the pinnacle of God's story, of God's mission to fill the earth with his glory. Okay, So if you can turn in your Bibles to Luke 2, I'm going to read verses 22 to 35. The words will come up on the screen if you don't have your Bible. But it is a great thing to bring your Bible because you can follow along a lot easier. And also you can, you can like, look for yourself. You can look at cross-references and say, I don't want to just believe this because Dan tells me this. I want to look at it for myself. So I'd encourage you guys, bring your Bibles along. But if you've forgotten it, it's up there. Okay. And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Don't worry about that too much. That's, that's basically what the Jewish law told Jewish parents that they had to do when a, they had a firstborn child. Okay, So we're not going to go into that much, just that's what's going on there. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Okay, so the Holy Spirit had told Simeon, you're not going to die until you see the Christ, the Messiah. In other words, the one that the Old Testament promises is going to free his people and make them a light to the nations. We're going to look at that a little bit more later. Okay, and, when, and he came in the Spirit into the temple... And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. You would too, wouldn't you, if something like that happens. And Simeon blessed them. And said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, 
and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts by many hearts may be revealed. Every story needs a context. Okay? Every little story that you find or that you tell has a bigger story that it's part of. Okay? So I don't know if you've ever walked in on a situation where you get a sense of what's going on, but you're not really too sure. It's like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. You ever had that experience? Yeah? Where you, kind of, you hear what some, one person's saying, you think, okay, I kind of get an idea of what's going on, but I get the sense that I'm missing the big story. Yeah? Anyone watch the Olympics uh, when they were passing the torch along on the way to the Olympics? Yeah, I went to watch that really early in the morning at St Pancras Station a few weeks ago. And I got there, so I got off my bike, and there were people everywhere. There's just a huge sense of excitement. Buses parked with, like, big loudspeakers blaring music out. There was a band playing. And there was this little strip of, of going through the station where loads of people were lining up waiting for a guy to run through with a torch. And then after it, it was over immediately. It was really exciting. I loved the fact that I got to go there, even though it was early in the morning. But imagine you had gone to that and you didn't know the big story. You didn't understand why, that, why on earth was this person running through the station with a torch and why was no one with a fire extinguisher try, trying to put it out? What on earth is going on? Why are these people so excited? Why is this band playing? Okay, he's probably not that dangerous because everyone's cheering him on, but I don't really get what's going on. You ever had that kind of experience where you, you get a sense there's something exciting going on, but I don't understand the whole story? And it's kind of the same with the one we've just read. If you've been a Christian for a while, it might have just kind of gone straight over you. But if you're new to church, you may have read this story and think, what on earth is that about? Kind of give you a modern parallel. Imagine we are doing baby dedication on a Sunday, so we get maybe Felix Tarry up, and that's not you, this is Simon, but (laughs) his son. And we get him up just to pray for him. And then halfway through, the back door opens and an 80-year-old man comes running in, runs to the front, grabs Felix and says, yes, I can die! I can die now! It's weird, isn't it? When you think about it, it's a little bit odd. And if you haven't been a Christian for a while, you were probably hit with how odd that story was, a little bit more than those of us who are used to reading these kind of things and actually aren't really struck with how bizarre sometimes it is. But the reason it can strike us as bizarre is actually we, we can sometimes be like the people who go in and watch the flame being passed along without understanding the big story that the Olympics are coming to London. Yeah? So we can read this story and we think, yeah, it talks about Jesus. It's amazing. I get the sense of excitement, but I don't really know why exactly Simeon's reacting this way. And I don't understand everything he's saying. And the way, what we've got to do is we need to understand what the big story behind this is. Okay? So and what I want to do today is give you a sense of God's big story and see how this fits inside that. So essentially what I'm going to do for the next 10-15 minutes is basically just tell you a story. That's pretty cool, isn't it? People don't tend to mind that. That's a nice and easy preach to listen to. I'm just going to tell a story, and I'm basically going to tell the story that Simeon was living with, which happens to be the story of Israel and the story of the Old Testament. And actually there are two reasons I want to do this. One is because you guys are actually going to get why Simeon reacts so intensely, because it is a bit weird to react like that to a newborn child. But on the other hand, actually if you're in Christ, if you've repented and been baptised, and you say, I'm following Jesus, actually, you get added into this story. I don't know if the the Stowers aren't here today, are they? But they've just adopted um, a couple of children from Russia. And those children, by virtue of being adopted into that family, suddenly have, have, they've gained grandparents, they've gained uncles and aunties, and they've gained a history which wasn't actually theirs until they were brought into it. And actually, as a Christian, you've been brought into a story that is far greater than just your little life. Yeah? You've been brought into God's mission to fill the earth with his glory. And we're going to look at that today. 
And so whether, whether you already know why Simeon's reacting that way or, or not, you are going to get something out of this because you're going to be, I'm going to tell you your story, essentially, the story that you are part of. Okay? So the story that Simeon was living with, in other words, Israel's story, kind of goes something like this. In the beginning, God, the living God, created everything. Okay, so he created the mountains, he created the seas, the stars, everything. And he did that in order to display how great he was. That's the reason God created the universe. He says, I want to show how amazing I am. If you're God, there is nothing you delight in more than yourself, because there is nothing greater than you. And so he says, I'm going to create a universe which so reflects my glory that angels are going to look at it and think, that is absolutely amazing. That creatures that I make are going to look at it and think, that is absolutely incredible. So he makes that. He makes puffins and trees and... I just love puffins. They're amazing. And he, he makes the weird creatures that no one's ever going to see. And he thinks, you know what? No one's ever going to find that creature, but I delight in it. And he creates all of those things. And as the pinnacle of his creation, he creates you and me. He creates a creature who can stand upright, can reason, can do music, maths sometimes, has the capacity for emotion and for love and to basically represent God. The Bible says God made us in his image, which basically means he made us a little bit like a mirror. Okay? God says, I want to fill the whole earth with creatures who look a little bit like me. So that's not to say we're, we're God. What that means is actually we look a little bit like God because we're supposed to reign and rule and subdue creation in such a way that everywhere people go, they see images of God. They see, oh, there is an image of God. The God who created that person must be great because of the way that person's acting. Okay, you guys following so far? That is God's mission. God's mission is he wants to fill the earth with his image and his glory. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, or even not, you will know something goes wrong. Basically, the first two human beings ever created ended up saying, we don't want to be, we don't want to be mirrors, that's boring. Which actually is not true. It is exciting being a mirror, reflecting God's glory. But they said, no, we don't want that. We want to be God. And they were tempted by the devil, who came, come in the form, comes in the form of a snake, who basically said to them, if you eat from the tree that God has told you you can't eat of, you're going to be like God. And so they thought, well, that sounds good. They did it. And as a result, they turned their back on God. And as a result, a curse came upon creation, where God said, I can't have you guys living in my presence anymore. I have to cast you out of my presence. And he said, and actually death comes into the world as a result. As a result of turning our back on God, death came into the world. But even within that, God said, actually, there's going to be a day that that comes. He speaks to the woman out of the couple and he says, there is going to be one of your descendants who is going to crush the serpent's head. In other words, someone is going to come from your line who is going to undo the curse that was brought about by Adam. Yeah? We all clear so far? Good. I know it's hot and just try and bear with me through this. Okay. Now, what happens after that, if you read the Bible, is lots and lots of judgment and grace and people keeping on disobeying God and God judging them and then God extending grace until finally what God does is he chooses a man who was a pagan worshipper who lived in kind of modern day Iraq called Abraham or Abram as he was originally called and I've asked Dave Morris if he would be nice and help to be Abraham today so if Dave Morris can come up because Dave Morris like we heard is moving to Cambridge and one of the things that God told Abraham when he met with him was I want you to move from the country where you're from at the moment. So that's over there. Just helps for later. (laughs) That's over there. And he says, I want you to move to the land that I'm going to show you. And so Abraham moves and he goes eventually to the land that is now modern day Palestine. He says, I'm going to give you this land. He says, and I'm going to bless you. 
I'm going to do you good. So remember, there's a curse. God says, I'm going to bless Abraham. I'm going to give you lots and lots and lots of descendants. They're going to become a great nation. They're going to inherit the land. And I will be your God, your people's God. They will be my people. And the reason I'm doing this is, obviously, I'm going to bless you. But actually, through you, all the nations will be blessed. Okay? Some of you guys, um, all I knew about Abraham when I was a kid was that he had lots of sons and we sang songs about it. Take Abraham out of the Bible, there is no gospel the way we know it. God's promises to Abraham are what actually guides the story of the Bible. So I've got, some of you may have seen this wheel here and thought, what on earth is that about? Some of you just thought, oh, we, we have random stuff lying around at church. But that was not the kind of reaction I got from my neighbour earlier on when I was trying to explain why I was washing my wheel. It's like, if I'm using it as a teaching illustration. He didn't quite understand what it was about. But basically, I like to see God's promises to Abraham as a wheel. And that is quite clean, so you won't get too dirty. And basically, the, the wheel is what gives the bike direction, isn't it? If the wheel's wonky, the bike goes off course. And if you think of the story of the Bible like a bike, the promises that are given to Abraham are what keeps that story going along. So the promise that God is going to bless him, make him a blessing to all nations, is actually what keeps the story of the Bible going along. Okay? Now, eventually, what happened is a lot and lot, lots and lots and lots of descendants came out of Abraham, and not literally, because that would be weird, but lots, there were lots and lots of descendants, and eventually they became a really, really numerous people called Israel, and God said, okay, I'm going to take you, if you've seen Prince of Egypt, they ended up in Egypt, they came out of Egypt, back into their land, and God said, I'm going to give you a law, which essentially... Part of the reason God give them, gives them the law is so that they could be a blessing to the nations. Do you remember, we were created to reflect God, be like him, so that when people saw us, they could say, oh, that's what God's like. Israel were given the law, which was God's standard, so that they could live like that. And God says, okay, in my law, it says, don't oppress the poor. Live for justice. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And if you live like that, the nations around you are going to see, and they're going to say, your God is amazing. I'm turning and following him. So that was the purpose of God giving them the law, Okay, and then he also gives them something called the tabernacle, which is a, basically a place where the presence of God dwelt. Remember, one of the promises given to Abraham was that God would be his people's God and that they would be his people. And God says, I am going to choose to dwell right in their midst in a tabernacle. I can't actually dwell with them face to face because they're too sinful, but I'm going to choose to dwell in a tent and later on a temple right in the middle of them. That's God's grace to his people. But all of this, bear in mind, all of this is so that the nations could be blessed and that the curse of Adam could be undone. Are we following so far? Good. Okay. Now, God's people, if you've read the Old Testament, even if you just read one chapter, you probably get the impression that God's people didn't live up to the blessing they should have been. So eventually, after time and time again of God disciplining his people, God ultimately disciplines them and says, okay, right, enough is enough. What I'm going to do is discipline you to say, actually, you can't be my people and keep turning away from it. I am so zealous about my glory filling the earth that I will not have my people basically turning to other gods, worshipping them when I am the true God. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to raise up a foreign nation called the Babylonians, and they are going to take my people into exile. And so Dave Morris, a.k.a. Abraham, and now Israel, now moves all the way to Babylon. And the Babylonians destroy the temple, which is the place where God lived, They destroy Jerusalem. They take God's people away from the land as a way of God judging his people and saying, I am not going to accept my people turning away because I want them to bless the nations. 
And I can't have them blessing the nations if they're constantly turning away. So he's looking a bit sorry for himself at the moment. They were. They didn't know what to do about this. Because bearing in mind, all of your hope is bound up with the land and the promises of God. They all seem to have been stripped away. It's a little bit like the spokes in the wheel seem to be out of place, don't they? It's like, what's happened to the promises? Now the good news is, God intention wasn't to keep them in Babylon the whole time. He, wa- he wanted to just discipline his people. And so what he did is he raised up prophets, and I thought who better to represent the, the three prophets that I'm going to talk about than the three elders. So if the three elders could come at the front, please. Now, <laughs> there are lots of prophets in the Bible, but three in particular that are really important for talking to the people who are in exile, wondering what on earth has God done? Has he abandoned us? Were prophets called Jeremiah, which is rich here, so if you could actually go on that side, that would be cool, because I'm going to have to talk about you first. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. Okay, now, Jeremiah prophesied. There's going to be a day when you are going to come back out of exile, and I'm going to give you a new covenant. Okay, so remember the law that was given to Israel that they disobeyed? Jeremiah said, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, and instead of giving you law on stone that you need to follow, I'm going to write it on your heart, which is pretty cool, isn't it? So you don't need to be like, oh, I can't obey the law because it's actually written on your heart. So Jeremiah says that. Ezekiel, if you've read Ezekiel, it's weird. Okay, I'll admit that. But at the, at the final few chapters, Ezekiel promises a new temple. And if you've read the description and managed to make any sense of it, it is a pretty impressive temple. It's huge. And not only is it huge, it's got a river that flows out of it, which is obviously pictorially symbolizing the presence of God going out of the temple and blessing all the nations. Which is pretty cool because the temple was lying in ruins at the moment. But God promises, no, there's going to be a new temple and it's going to be far greater than what you had before. My presence is going to dwell amongst my people in a way that it hasn't done before. And then Isaiah, who actually was prophesying 200 years before all of this happened, which is amazing. I just love that. He prophesies so precisely about 200 years before any of this happens. And he says, my people are going to come back out of exile and I'm going to give them a new salvation says in Isaiah 49, Isaiah speaking about Israel says it's too small a thing that you should simply come back from exile. It's too small a thing that you should be my servant simply to restore the tribes of Jacob. And he says, I'm going to make you a light to the nations that the ends of the earth might see my salvation. Yeah, so these are pretty impressive promises, aren't they? Now imagine you are in exile and you're hearing these promises. How are you feeling? You're feeling excited, aren't you? You're thinking, yes, there's a day when this exile is going to finish, when the wheel of promise is going to be bent right back into shape, everything is, and put back on the bike, and everything is going to run its course again. Okay? Now, what happened when God's people actually came back from exile 70 years later is actually another story. They came back, they did rebuild the, the Jerusalem, they did rebuild the temple, but it was nothing like the old temple, let alone what Ezekiel was prophesying. In fact, there's a passage in Ezra which talks about people looking at the foundations of the new temple and the people who'd seen the old one wept because they remembered how glorious the old one was. This new temple that they just built was nothing like that. Even more than that, God's people were still disobeying God constantly. You just have to read some of the last books of the Old Testament which are written after the exile to realise that God's people kept turning away from him still. Where was the new covenant? Where was the new temple? And where was the new salvation? God's people were a sm- came back as a small enclave inside a massive Persian empire which had taken over the world during that time. They were this tiny little enclave in the middle of it. Where was the blessing to the nations? Where was God's covenant? 
where was the new temple? Where was the new salvation? That's what you would have been feeling if you went like that. And actually, that is what God's people were feeling for the next 400 years. They were a small, insignificant people. The people that God had said, you're going to be a light to the nations to, was actually a tiny enclave in the middle of a huge, huge empire. Didn't look like they were blessing the nations. It didn't look like God's promises were there. Okay, you guys can go sit down. Give them a round of applause. Okay. Now, that is the story Simeon was living with. That's the story that as Simeon comes to the temple, so we're talking return from exile took place in about the mid-5th century BC. This is about 0 AD. 400 years God's people have been living with these promises that were huge but seemed to be unfulfilled. And Simeon was living with that. Just imagine you're Simeon and you're living with the fact you know your people are supposed to be a blessing to the nations, but it doesn't look like it at the moment. And now imagine that God reveals to you, which is what it says in the passage, God reveals that you're not going to die until you see the Messiah, the one who actually is going to bring about these promises. Imagine the sense of excitement as he walks into the temple that day. And the temple was a huge, massive, busy place. It was just like, I don't know, think maybe, think maybe Borough Market, that kind of busy thing going on. And God says, you're going to see my salvation today. And he sees this small baby over... There were loads of people everywhere. He sees this small baby at the entrance. And God says, that's the one. Can you imagine what it would have felt like to be Simeon at that point? You're living with 450 years of unfulfilled promises. And God says, this is my Messiah. This is the one. Does that make sense now? It's a li- like, I think running to the front, grabbing the baby and saying, I can die now, is a little bit less of an overreaction when you realise the story that is going on behind it. And basically what I want to do is look at what does it mean when you realise that Jesus is the climax of the story. So we've got the story. We understand now Simeon's reaction. Let's look just at a couple of things that Simeon says because he encounters Jesus as the climax of God's story. And what does it mean for us when we encounter Jesus as the climax of God's story? When we go from DVD to Blu-ray, when we get high definition of who Jesus really is, what does that look like? And I just want to look at two things quickly. But before we go into that, I want to say we know the end of the story. We know more than Simeon did. Simeon reacted in a way that is completely appropriate to what he saw. It was absolutely amazing. But actually, we know the end of the story. I don't think Simeon knew that this baby would grow up and be killed by the Romans and raised from the dead and ascended on high. But he saw enough because he knew his Old Testament. He knew his story. He saw enough. So that when he saw this baby, he could react the way he did. Simeon didn't realise. Just think, if there's there's something that you're not ever going to be able to figure out in your life, this is just mind-boggling. He's holding a few-week-old baby. Simeon didn't realise he was holding the one who spoke the universe into being. He didn't realise he was holding the one. (laughs) He's holding. Have you ever seen a few-week-old baby or just a newborn baby? They're tiny. He's holding up the one who is holding him up at that point. (laughs) Try and get your mind around that. You won't be able to. It's absolutely incredible. Simeon didn't know all that we know. 
So the way Simeon reacts actually should be completely overshadowed by the way we react. Because whereas Simeon said, I know this is God's salvation. I don't know how it's going to work, but I just know this is God's salvation. We know how it works. We know how the story ends. We know what happens afterwards. So as we look at these things, just bear in mind, our reaction to this is that we know so much more than he did. And so our reaction should be so much greater. And our praise to God should be so much greater for all of that. Okay, so just a couple of things. I'm going to try and go through this quickly. I realize it's quite hot and not the easiest thing to just sit down and listen. But I want to look at these two things. And first of all is, when you encounter Jesus as the climax of God's mission, of God's story, you can die in peace. Can we have the the poem part back up? Um, Just that's the third slide. We're just going to basically look at what Simeon says when he picks up Jesus and shouts out, when you encounter Jesus as the climax of God's story, you can die in peace. He says, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace. That means I can die now, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon's saying, I've seen something so amazing. I've seen something so great in this baby. I can die. Shoot me now. I don't care. I can die. That is a pretty impressive reaction. Simeon sees this baby and says, I can die in peace because I know that there's hope. I know there's hope. I've seen it with my eyes. My question is, have you seen God's salvation with your eyes? Have you seen Jesus? Not, not just as your personal saviour. Hallelujah for all of that. It's amazing he is, but Jesus for who he really, really is. As the sovereign creator of the universe. The one in whom everything climaxes. The fulcrum about which everything else turns. Have you seen him as that? Because if you have, you get to the point where you say, you know what? I can die in peace. I'm going to live the rest of my life to glorify God. But if I die tomorrow, I can do that in peace because my eyes have seen the salvation of God. Paul could say that, the Apostle Paul. He said, I don't count my life as worth anything to me if only I might finish my course and testify to the grace of God. He said, you know what? I'm going to get beaten to shreds, which he did. And I don't care if I die. My life doesn't count to me anymore. I just want to tell everyone about Jesus because I can die in peace now that I've seen him. Thousands of early Christians were chucked to the lions in Roman arenas to be ripped apart. And the reason they went there rejoicing is they'd seen the salvation of God. And they said, we can die in peace. We can die in peace. We are not enjoying the fact that we're being ripped apart, but we can die in peace because we know there is hope. We know God's got the world in control and we know God has got us under control. There's hope. And there are thousands and thousands of Christians around the world today who are sustained by the promise of hope because they've seen the salvation of our God. Can you say that? This is a huge challenge to me. Can I say genuinely, I can die in peace now? Maybe to just root it in reality, there's a a, a guy called PJ Smythe, who some of you may have heard of, who two years ago was diagnosed with cancer. And he recovered eventually, which which is great. But he said that actually during that time, he came, there were a few points where he thought he was going to die. But he also said at those points, he'd never felt so at peace with God at that point. Because he'd seen God as his salvation. Maybe a little bit close to home. Dave let me, Dave's letting me share this. I'm so grateful for it. But Dave's dad died a couple of weeks ago. And I've had the privilege of seeing up close someone who has seen God's salvation. I've just been chatting with Dave and just the stuff he's saying in terms of dealing with the death of his father just shows me this is someone who's seen God's salvation. There's such peace 
I just remember sitting, talking to him, and he's just telling me about everything that's been going on. And he said, I don't know how people do this without Jesus. And I just thought, you have seen it. You've seen God's salvation. And he said, you know what? I am grieving, obviously. The Bible tells us we grieve when someone dies. But I know there is hope. I know that my dad knew there was hope. And I know that us as a family know there's hope. And he's talking about the, w- the way that this can actually testify to the grace of God. And I just think that is such an amazing example. It's been a privilege to be up close to that over the last couple of weeks and see someone who's encountered God in such a way that he can say, you know what, I'm at peace with what's going on now. I just want to say, can you say that? I feel there's some people here today who you are scared of death. Not in a kind of, I don't enjoy the idea of death, but you are gripped with a fear of death. And I feel God wants to set people free today as they see Jesus as the climax of God's story. They see him as the one who brings hope that they can say, you know what, I'm not scared of death anymore. I'm not scared, I'm at peace with it. Father, I just pray that right now, Lord God, those who are gripped with the fear of death, who are gripped maybe with the fear of death of loved ones or fear of their own death. I just pray, Lord, would they encounter Jesus as the climax, as the hope, the one who fulfills all of those promises. And so therefore there is hope for the nations. There's hope for us that they could say with Simeon, you know what? I'd love to live for another 10, 20, 30, 40 years to glorify you. But if I die today, I'm at peace with that. I just pray, make us a church like that that says, I've seen God's salvation, I can die. Amen. Amen. Okay, one more point, and then we're going to close. The second thing you get when you see Jesus as the climax of the story is you get a sense of the big picture and you get a passion for the nations. Okay, so again, let's reread what he says. So Simeon says, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That Greek word there is the same word as nations and for glory to your people Israel. God, as we saw in the story of the Old Testament, is about reaching the nations. He's always been about that because he wants to fill the earth with his glory. And actually, when you see Jesus fulfilling all of that, you get a sense of God's passion for the nations. You get a sense, I want to be involved in that, however that looks like. And actually, as we get brought into this story, Do you remember what Isaiah said, that I quoted earlier? He said, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant simply to restore the tribes of Jacob. I will make you a light to the nations. As we get included in Christ, we get brought into that promise where we can say it's too small a thing just to build Revelation Church. And it's amazing to build Revelation Church. I'm all for it. Give your all to it. But it's too small a thing, ultimately. I'm going to make you a light to the nations. You see, a lot of the time as Christians, we can have kind of like, have you ever seen a horse with blinkers on? Yeah, the point of blinkers is you, you want to stop the horse seeing what's to the side because horses have eyes on the side of their face. so They can see to the side really well. If you put blinkers on, they can just see ahead of them. And a lot of the time when it comes to having the big picture of God wanting to reach the ends of the earth, a lot of the time Christians can be a little bit like they're wearing blinkers. They're, just, they're looking at their own lives. They're looking even, even at their own church, which is a great thing, but they've lost sight of God's big mission. And when you see Jesus fulfilling the prophecies that we talked about, then you get a sense of, I want to be involved in that. I don't know whether that means I'm going to move somewhere, but I want to be involved in that because I've caught a passion for the nations because I want to see God's glory spread everywhere. I'm only in this because God said, okay, I'm going to make Israel a servant 
so that they can reach the ends of the earth with my salvation. And a perfect Israelite came along and fulfilled that. That's what Jesus does. Where Israel fails to be a blessing, Jesus succeeds. Israel failed during 40 years in the wilderness of being tempted. Jesus succeeds when he was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. Where Israel failed to be a blessing to the poor in the, in the Bible, a lot of the time, Jesus succeeds because he proclaims good news for the poor. When Israel failed to be a blessing and show God's glory to the nations, Jesus says, my desire, my food is to do the will of my Father. I'm not going anywhere unless it's for his glory. And Jesus fulfills that. And more than that, he fulfills the very curse that should have been poured out on us because of our rebellion, because of, basically because we were not being a blessing. He, we should have been crushed. But instead, God says, okay, I'm going to choose my son he is going to fulfill what my people should have done and he's going to bear the curse they should have borne and he's going to be raised from the dead and fulfill all of that. All of those prophecies you heard, those amazing things that the Israelites in exile would have been so absolutely ecstatic about, Jesus fulfills. It's all climaxing in Jesus. And when you see him like that, you get a passion for the nations because you've realised this is so much bigger than just me, my life. It's so much bigger than me and Jesus in my little bubble. I like that expression, me and Jesus in my little bubble. It's so much bigger than that. It's about God's glory reaching the ends of the earth. And Simeon got a glimpse of this. Simeon got a glimpse. He didn't know how it would happen, but he got a glimpse of God's glory and salvation reaching the ends of the earth. And for him, it was enough to say, I can die now. I can die because I've seen the hope of God's glory reaching the ends of the earth of the promises made right in Genesis 3, where it says, I'm going to undo the curse. He's seen the fulfillment in this baby. He'd seen a glimpse of it, but we see the whole thing. We know the end. We know the end of the story. I don't, I don't know if you guys have watched much of the Olympics and of the, the proms and the, uh, the, for, the jubilee this year. It's been a good year to be British, hasn't it? There's just a sense in which everyone's really proud to be British. Um, and I was watching as you do, watching the proms on BBC this afternoon with my flatmates, uh, watching the final one. And there was just this shot. They, they kind of relay the video of what's going on in the Royal Albert Hall to the whole of Hyde Park. And there's just this crowd of about 40,000 people waving flags, basically being really, really excited and proud to be British as they're singing Land of Hope and Glory, waving it, belting it out. The Bible tells us there's going to be a day where it's not going to be 40,000 people in front of a screen it's going to be a multitude that no one can number from every tribe, every nation, every people group standing before the throne, not waving flags, waving palm branches, which represent salvation, the rescue of God, saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's not going to be singing with pride because we're British. It's going to be singing with sheer and utter joy because we've been brought out of slavery, brought into God's people, added in, and we can stand before his throne and say, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's going to be an amazing day. And if you keep that as your vision, is that your vision? If you keep that as your vision, it will get those blinkers off. If you see Jesus as the one who's going to fulfill all of that, it gets your blinkers off and you realise this is so much bigger than just me and my church. This is about the nations. That's why we send people out. That's why we sent Matt Med to Latvia. That's why we sent the Rileys to Poland because they caught a sense of God's purpose in the nations. And that's why we're holding the Nations Day next week. 
I'd encourage all of you, try, get along to that. I don't know how many people we can pack in the library. If you have a passion for the nations, get along. If you don't have a passion for the nations, get along so that you can ask God to give you a passion for the nations. It might not mean moving. In fact, for a lot of us, it won't mean moving to the nations. But you don't need to move to get a passion for it. I don't need to know that, I don't need to, to think God wants me in China to get excited about the fact that there are Christians in China worshipping God. I don't need to know that, that God wants me there to get excited about it. And for many of you, you may feel called to another country. And that's fantastic. That's amazing. But for many of us who are sitting here thinking, you know what, I don't really like the whole Passion for Nation talks because I don't really feel called anywhere. You know what, ultimately, I'm not after you feeling called to the nations. I'm after you getting caught up in this massive story where you say, I am so passionate about the gospel reaching the ends of the earth. I, I feel God wants me here at the moment, but I'm going to give money. I'm going to pray for people. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to do everything I can so that God's purposes can be fulfilled. That's what we're living for. And that's what happens when you see Jesus as the climax of God's story, not just as your personal saviour, not just as a good man, but as the climax of God's mission to fill the ends of the earth with his glory. Can the band just come up? Can we stand, please? I just want to... I want us to respond. I want to basically let God's word have the last word today. I just felt stirred to do that. So what I want to do is I'm going to read three passages out, back to back. One of them... Basically, I want you guys to imagine you are Simeon, or you are another person in Israel. You are living with the promises of God. Okay, You are living with God's promises that he's going to reach the nations and you're going to be a blessing. And you are sitting in front of a temple which looks nothing like God's promises. I want you to imagine you're there. I'm just going to read three passages back to back which will take us all the way from the place Simeon was in his heart waiting for God's salvation all the way to the end. And I just want you guys to see how Jesus fulfills all of that so we can get a sense of excitement we're going to sing a song called Awake Awake of Zion which may sound a bit weird but it's basically a song about seeing Jesus as the climax of God's story and it just puts one pretty much my favourite passage in the Bible to song so that's all good I just want to read this out and we're going to see that the reason that the promise in Isaiah 52 can be fulfilled it comes from Isaiah 52 is that Isaiah 53 comes straight after it and then that climax is after in Revelation 7, where the nations gather before the throne. So just listen, open up your hearts to God and just ask him to give you a sense of how great Jesus is as the climax of God's story as we read this. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Remember, they're in exile at this point, hearing this. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Because, Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, Jesus, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Because of that, John can say, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. This isn't the problems. No one can number this. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. We thank you, Jesus. You are the climax of it all. You're the one in whom it's all fulfilled. You're the great light to the nations. You're the one in whom we're included so that we can become part of your people. Father, I thank you that we are here today because you were faithful to your promise. I thank you we are here today because as Simeon said, we've seen your salvation. Thank you, Lord God. I pray as we sing now, would you give us a sense of your greatness. Give us a sense of how you have fulfilled all of your promises in Christ so that we can be caught up, not in just something that is for our own lifetime in our own country, but something which reaches the ends of the earth and goes beyond our generation to the generations beyond and climaxes with your return and multitudes singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We thank you, God, and we worship you.